Dr. Jasmine Dillard is a great friend of mine and a fellow colleague. We both met in dental school and became fast friends in our pediatric dental residency program. She is married to an outstanding man who is also in the dental field as an orthodontist, Dr. Melvin Dillard. Both of them have been building their dental empire over the last five years called Dental Art Specialists. They are proud owners of two dental offices in Evanston and Beverly, Illinois. They are amazing parents to three beautiful boys, Melvin, Mason, and Maverick. I am lucky enough to have Jasmine as my resource in understanding life as a Black person in America. We both have spent hours on the phone discussing the numerous injustices that plague the Black community. While I was just educating myself, Jasmine and her family have been living it every day. Okay, thank you, Jasmine, for joining me today to discuss a bit more about how some of these injustices have affected your life when you were a child and how it's affected your parenting. I hope you feel comfortable to share some of your parents' experiences as well, too. Just so everybody knows, Jasmine's dad is a Haitian immigrant. So Jasmine is also a first-generation American, born and raised here. The first thing I really want to talk to you about, Jasmine, is understanding that black children do undergo a lot of trauma just by being black. Specifically, let's talk about generational trauma. Racism, dating back to slavery, then going to black civil rights movement, and now mass incarceration of black people, that kind of trauma to the black community goes on, not just from those that had to deal with it, but also their children, mainly because those that had to deal with it, mainly because our society doesn't allow us to heal from it, especially in America, and that can affect their ability to parent or be there for their child. Do you have any examples of that or any insight that you can give on generational trauma that the Black community has dealt with? So I, I personally know I have two, as you mentioned, um, I'm a first generation Haitian American. Uh, my father um, came here from Port Prince, Haiti, when he was around 14, 15 years old, um, one of eight children. Um, and their, their actual migration to this country was a very convoluted process. Um, dealing with what we deal with, with immigration, it was, it was a little bit lengthier, um, and they had to be split up as a family to get here, um, but they all eventually made it. Um, and of course, being an immigrant, I'm going to talk about that component first. So being an immigrant, um, a lot of people have backgrounds with immigration. Their families come here from Europe, from Africa, from Asia, from all different parts of the world, South America. And not only being a Black man who came here with no English background, no education, Western, Western education, that tend to play a role in just his level of development. Think about his love, his psyche, his emotional development. And so, yeah, he told me stories about how he would get teased in school all the time, trying to learn, trying to learn how to read English, trying to speak English. English. And if you speak to my father now, he still has a strong Haitian accent. Now I've been around him all my life, so it's very hard for me to detect that unless there's certain words that he's saying but it's still something that's ingrained in him but his english is impeccable his english is perfect now he's 65 years old so he's learned that over the years obviously um and so as a haitian a haitian man you know his he's got he's got two younger sisters and he's got an older brother and then 
what is that? Him, my two aunts, and then we got four more siblings. No, no, five more siblings. Okay. It's they all had their own journey. Um, so things like not being able to afford just a basic lunch because my grandmother busted herself for many years working as um, a cleaning lady in the hospital. My grandfather had multiple jobs just trying to make ends meet and put food on the table for his eight children. You know, they had to, they had to go through some odds to get to where they are. And my father and my aunt out of the eight were the only two that were able to successfully get an edu higher education or go on to get their college degree. And so even with that being said, that's, that's a lot. Um, knowing where he came from and if you know the history of Haiti and how it has progressed from, you know, the 50s and the 60s to what it is now, it's an extremely poor country. They've gone through a lot of turmoil and, um, you know, unrest. And so I think that has a lot to say about him. Uh, when it comes to my mother's side of the family, my mother's American. My mother was raised, she had a very uh, tough childhood to say the least. She had been through multiple schools. Her mother was a single parent for some time, raising three children. Um, she eventually remarried and she um, had a fourth child. But my mother has vivid memories growing up as a child, um, being called the N-word frequently. Um, she went to school just here in the South suburbs. And she was just recently told me stories about herself just having to pressure through and get through going to Catholic school as a, a, a little black girl in the 60s and the 70s. And so um, she, I think, honestly, um, you know, both of them have their own grit. But I think my mom has definitely internalized a lot of her experiences on the front end because she remembers firsthand. Not to say that my father didn't, but her memories are very sound because she grew up in the South as well. And she knew Jim Crow South. She knew all of that. She was raised through that. And so not being able to walk in certain facilities, not being able to dine in certain areas, that's a, that's a reality that a lot of people face that look like me in 50s, 60s, and even before that. So um, the amount of trauma that's that lingers you know there's always a guard there's always you know they always got a chip on their shoulder you know it's you know be polite keep your head low but we're in a different day and age and you know we have a lot of people that have fought to get to allow people like me to get to the the place that i am so i can never be tired i can never be tired because there's been a lot of people that have come before me to as they say provide me the crown that i have so that i can be who i am today that is definitely something that you you still kind of see and i think I, I would say like i said my mom probably is the one and she's you know women can be a little bit more emotional creatures but they both have two different journeys and they both see have seen their own um stripes when it comes to that the one thing i did notice i mean i've tried to educate myself as much as i can over the last you know multiple years while you've been living this, you know, your whole family has been living this. And just by watching movies, which is very much where I get the emotional aspect of what you guys deal with, right? You, in the movies, some people like Viola Davis and The Help help me understand the panic you get when you're walking home in the wrong side of town, you know, at the wrong time of night, just because you're Black. And that seeing Viola Davis go through that in the help showed me that that trauma of then your heart is massively racing. You're on guard consistently. 
And what that does to your internal structures is not very good. And if you're going through a lifetime of that, what do you expect to happen to some of these people? It's hard to bear, carry that burden that you always have to be on alert. And I think that then, you know, as a child, you're growing up that way, you're developing into an adult that then is now parenting and then having to teach your kids those things. You know, that to me is, it's really hard to then talk to your kids about, you know, some of, some of these hard truths for black people. So um, something I definitely did want to talk about was implicit bias. Um, implicit bias is pretty much refers to like an automatic or unconscious stereotype that drives people to behave and make decisions in a certain way. So internally, implicit bias pretty much means internally people have a stereotype in their mind about black people. And Michelle Obama talked about this in her book, specifically about her brother, Craig being stopped uh, while riding his bike along Lake Michigan and that the officer could not believe that a young boy, a young black boy could own such a new bike and accused him of stealing it. And that means to me that a kid, a black kid can't ride a new bike and just do that, that there is someone judging what that means. And he, that means that kid can't just enjoy life the way a white kid can enjoy it, or even an Indian. I'm Indian. We don't get stereotypes like that. Nobody ever comes to us and thinks that, hey, you might have stolen this. Let me go and inquire. And that inquiry for a Black child, seeing a police come talk to you, dude, we were scared of the police when we were younger. Our parents threatened if we did something bad that the police was going to come and beat <laughs> our asses or put us in jail. Exactly. So can you imagine, like, oh, of course, you, your family and, the, you know, the Black community deals with this. And I want people to start to understand that that does something to a child's psyche. That does something to the, to the, in, you know, the physical part of who they are and how they see the world. And then understanding how the world sees them, that there's something internally wrong with them that they're consistently questioned. And I think that that is something that I didn't know until I started reading books like Michelle Obama's book and also Gabrielle Union's book, which, in um, Gabrielle Union's book, who is the wife of Dwayne Wade, she discusses in her book that she had to have the talk with her, you know, sons. And I was like, I didn't understand what, you know, the talk to the rest of us is the sex talk. And I was like, what is this talk? And she talks about how there are unsaid rules for Black people, especially boys in society that have a tendency to view Black skin color as dangerous, and that they have to live by a different set of rules. And some of the things that she talked about specifically was she told them that they can't just walk around, you know, in a subdivision or whatever, wearing a hoodie with, cause somebody's going to pull over and figure out, like try to figure out what's going on here when it's just a black kid walking down the street. There's nothing, you know, she said, you can't wear a hoodie at night like that. She said, never, if you go to someone's house, never be in a room alone because if something gets stolen they're going to accuse you especially because they live in a very glamorous community where there are lots of expensive things laying around and things can get misplaced you know and so she said that sometimes people can you know can accuse you of stealing when you're just 
there living. So do you expect to have this talk with your boys? What will you say? What do you think that will look like? I don't think that conversation will ever die down. Yeah. I don't care how long we live. That's going to be a conversation that's going to go on for generation after generation after generation. I remember vividly my father having that conversation with my two younger brothers. I think they were around like maybe seven or eight, um, maybe, maybe a little older. And I'll never forget there was a scenario where they accused what my middle brother of stealing something out of a Walgreens. And he didn't steal it. And they called my father. And from that moment, my dad literally was like, okay, we, we, I need to make some things very clear to you as a young black boy. This is what is expected of you because they're going to think otherwise, no matter how innocent you may appear, this is what society thinks. And they grew up to be fine young men. I know, you know, my husband being the, an only child, a black man, a black educated man, and we have these three little black boys, we have to have the conversation. We live in a major metropolitan area, or even if we were living in a rural area, bottom line is this, our skin is black, period. Our skin is black, people may feel some kind of way about it, people may wanna be oblivious to the fact that racism still exists. The reality is we do everything we can to instill good good character in our our children um you know following the rules making sure you are respectful to adults because here's the reality in the talk not only do you have to talk about not wearing a hoodie walking down the street but you now have to talk about make sure you keep your hands on the steering wheel so nobody shoots at you in the car these are conversations that have to take place and as a black mother and just like so many other black men, women and men it's frightening. It's frightening to have to lose a child, period. But the fact that, you know, we're seeing so many stories about Black people losing their lives when they just in their garage, going in their house. This man just died the other day. He got shot at because they thought he had something in his right hand. That was, he was on his property and they killed this man. So it's, it's a reality that we're gonna to have to have a strong conversation about us being in the city of Chicago. Chicago police have had a history as well. And I'm not saying that all people that look like me haven't done their part, because some of them have, but here's the difference. And this is what they've been talking more and more about. This has been going on for years. It's just now being recorded. That's the difference. And so now people's dirt is coming out and they have to explain themselves. So lo and behold, to answer your question, the talk is a reality that I've discussed with some of my colleagues about, um, some of my peers and people, some of my close friends. It's just what we have to do to survive. It's a survival mechanism because we have to learn how to go along to get along and not piss anybody off or make them feel uncomfortable in environments that you know, they're not accustomed to, but it's, it's, the talk is a real conversation amongst a lot of black household. Do you remember your brother's responses to this? Like, did they kind of understand? Was it hard for them to accept? I believe that they kind of understood. And then it took one of them a little longer to understand, but he got it. 
he eventually got it. And they, again, they came out to be fine young men. And I never forget, and I'm just gonna put this out there, when we were um, residents, I'll never forget I had one of my professors who um, happened to be a white, white male, you know, make, and this is the, this is, these are the comments that are being made. You know, we're talking about me having two young brothers and, you know, in my mind, they're loving. I love my brothers. I think they're great individuals and just casual conversation. And I'll never, ever, ever forget this moment. This man made the comment to me, oh, they're lucky to be alive. I'm surprised they're still alive. And it didn't really hit home to me until I'm like, he lives in a different world. And maybe I'm just oblivious. I took offense to it. And I still do to some extent, but there is some reality to that in this day and age, given the, the turmoil and the, the trauma that many Black people have to, have to endure. Can't really remember the content of what we were talking about, but that is something that stood out to me like, okay, what's that supposed to mean? And I think it was a very innocent conversation. Like, oh, I got a 20-something-year-old brother and this and that, just trying to, you know, trying to make conversation. But that's not what you expect to hear from somebody when you're just making casual conversation. And it's just one of those conversations we have to continue to have with people, especially our kids. Do you, is there anything different that a girl would need to be told when it comes to these talks? One thing that I realized with reading um, Gabrielle Union's book was she was actually raped when she was in high school. I think she was like 17, 18, working at Payless. The police department didn't investigate. And her dad, they got one phone call or something. And then her dad pretty much told her, because we're Black, they're not going to put any time or energy into this. And they never got anything from it afterwards. And so let's just, let's just put it like this. Because this is always the conversation and when we see things that um, play out in the media and we see these incidents like that young man who blatantly raped that young girl was on top of her. This was a few years back. I can't recall his name out in California. Dad wrote a nice letter to the judge. Yeah. You know, this is going to destroy his future. He got probation. And I know this is in the context of a man. Let that be a black boy. It would be completely different wholly different story. And so I think there are times where Black women, Black girls may not be taken seriously. Like, let's think about what's happening with all these Black girls that are being kidnapped. Yes. And all these Black women that are disappearing. There's no conversation about that. That's kind of scary to know that let this be a white woman that be on top of it like white on rice. And that's what's a little disheartening and frustrating because they have history of multiple young black girls disappearing. It became very apparent over the past year or so. Um, it really was in that movie Get Out came out that it really surfaced, that I noticed these massive disappearances. And you know, people, if people don't fully sit down and watch that movie to understand, yeah, it had 98% on Rotten Tomatoes, but there's a story that Jordan Peele is trying to tell in that movie. And if you aren't bright enough to see, and that's what was kind of in, infuri infuriating and frustrating to some extent, the movie theater was packed. Packed with all white people. Good amount of white people. The, the struggle I had with that was, I don't think they fully understood the backstory.
because every aspect of his movie, he literally was highlighting injustices that were happening in the black community. One being these kidnappings. The mortality rate in black women who give child in childbirth, that's a huge deal, huge deal. And you got these black women that are dying right after giving childbirth. So it's so many different things that we can tap into as I'm sitting back and I've had plenty of time in 2020 to watch documentaries and stuff. There's been things that I've been educated on like, wait, for real? I didn't even know this was happening. Like, really? But it is real. It was something that I actually, and I think my husband and I came to realize when our, our, our four-year-old was hospitalized a couple years ago, they don't take us serious. They don't take us serious. Yeah. And when we're sitting here complaining about ailments, it's, you all right, you'll be okay. And next thing you know, that person perishes. So that is to your point, when it comes to Black women, you have to fight for what you know. Mm-hmm. It becomes a different conversation, though, when you're an educated person. And an educated Black woman is, oh, she knows what she's talking about. Let me engage her. It shouldn't be like that. It should be anybody that walks through a hospital setting or any young woman or whomever it is. If there's a problem, you listen to the chief complaint and you address it. Don't brush it under the rug and just think that they're making something up. There could be something seriously wrong. So these are just some areas where I can see having a conversation of such with a young woman. Just to get into kind of schooling, I know your your boys, they're not school aged yet. Are they in? Any not, they're not in grade school, but they are in preschool. And with you, you can also give me some insight about what you and your brothers dealt with when it comes to schooling system. And I know you have family that have worked in the school system, so I would love to get your insight. But some of the information I was gathering pretty much showed me that Black students nationally get suspended a lot more than most other races. Um, It says 48% of Black students nationally have been suspended compared to 23% of Hispanic and 21% of white students, which pretty much is more than double. Why are these Black kids getting, getting suspended or having, you know, issues at school at this level, especially when the population of Black people are significantly smaller compared to all of America? You know, uh, that is a great question because that is something that has been one of my main questions as I'm going through this selective enrollment process for my four-year-old. Child rearing is a lot different in different households. There's cultural norms. There's things that you can do with my kid. You can't do with somebody else's kid because he responds differently to it. And so I think that when people don't have the proper restorative practices in the school setting, um, you have to tailor it per child. Every child isn't going to respond to a timeout. You know, It may have to be something a little bit more subtle or it may have to be a little bit more extreme. But the problem is, instead of trying to hone into the deeper issue of what could be the emotion, emotional social concern, or if there's something socially that's causing the child to act out, and the only response you're giving to the child is to suspend them, then there's a gap somewhere in how do we work on, on, on helping to mitigate situations with these black and brown kids, period. Every kid that lashes out in school does not warrant them being suspended. And so 
that has been really one of my main questions because I'm not going to sit here and lie. My little baby, he guys, you know, he gets emotional. He's four. You know what I mean? He gets emotional. And I, I get emotional. He probably gets it from me. But I, I, I think that he's a bright kid, but every child goes through those, those moments where they can lash out and they can act out. How do we pull him back in and draw him back in and take a moment to assess what's going on? I think it's very important that people discern that. Um, there's got to be a lot more internal review and also ways to just develop that system a little bit better so that that can be cut down quite a bit. A lot of it can be stemmed from parent engagements. If you don't have parents engaged, it could that there's a it's multifactorial. It's not just okay, the kid acted up and let's suspend them. I don't know how engaged the parent is. What if there has been some things that have been suggested and the parents aren't engaged? That plays a major role. And so it's unfortunate that the numbers are as staggering as they are. Not surprised. It's just like the mass incarceration. It's always a threat because they think we, you know, I used to get all the time, you're an angry black girl. You always appear frustrated. What, because I'm expressing myself? No, that's just not it. You know, people, their interpretations are a lot different. Especially when you're black. They get real nervous. They get yeah. nervous. And the research I specifically saw was if, if the same situation occurred between a black and a white kid, the black kid, the escalation of the discipline would go really fast and would go from zero to 60. Like they would go from small disciplinary action then all of a sudden major disciplinary action. Where with a white kid, it would be steps before they even got to the major disciplinary action. They, they're more likely to doubt that the black kid you know, has good intentions where innately the, to them, innately the white kid has good intentions and should be given a second chance. And that was the other thing that I realized is that the second chance phenomenon between black and white communities is that if something similar happens in a black community, the, especially with a child that does something that, I mean, is a small infringement, maybe breaks into like a building, which that has happened definitely in my school. Um, but I lived in a predominantly white area in a white school where, you know, if they break into a building, it goes through the school system and the parents talk about it. And there is a light sentencing. It doesn't really ruin their life. But this black kid in an urban environment that might break into a school, it involves no community. It does not involve the school. It goes straight to criminal justice system. And so, the other thing that they started talked about was that the exposure to the criminal justice system at a younger age happens in a black community more often. So once you once you get exposed to the criminal justice system, they have you like in their system, and you just in the system, and you just you have no hope. It's like it's just it's a harsh it's a really harsh reality that we deal with, and it's really unfortunate that the system has pretty much put black boys, black girls too, in this bubble. But I'm not gonna say some of these things are self-inflicted. I'm not gonna say that they don't play a role in the process, but there's other ways to manage it, and to, like to your point. There's, there, there's other ways to handle that, but it also takes community, Dara, and you tapped on that too. 
when you have a disenfranchised community, how can they engage and try to uplift that, that individual? All they know is strife. All they know is hardship. They just trying to survive. So they're not really focused on, let me, let me set up programs to help elevate them so that we don't have to go down this road of calling the police and having them come in and arrest the kid because they broke into a store because they were hungry and they wanted some food. You know what I mean? It's not, we, it's community as well. And that's, you just went in, I went into another subject that I'm interested in is the fact that because of the history of black people in America and they dealt with all these injustices, they've been held back from succeeding in America. And that has had an impact in things like homelessness and food insecurity. African-American households face hunger two times the rate of white non-Hispanic households. The median average household income for the general population is about $68,000. For the African-American community, it's about $40,000. Homelessness is also at a, a higher rate in amongst the Black community. And that's not just because Black people aren't working hard. It's, yeah. it's because they dealt with this trauma from all this massive injustice that how can they come yeah. out of it unless we as a society start to acknowledge it and do things to repair things. And even if we can do that, this has been going on for generations. How much can you fix, you know? The other aspect of that is things like redlining. African-Americans are more likely to be de denied loans for, you know, for homes. And this I found really interesting. Back in the 80s, mainly, Black communities were often, the homes were often purchased by white people who would then sell that house back to the Black um, families, usually at higher rates, because Black people couldn't buy homes on their own. So not only could they not buy homes on their own, they're paying more money for it. So it's like you're digging a hole for these people, and how are they supposed to dig, you know, get themselves out of it? And so how did then, how does that affect your ability to purchase a home in a community that has a good, good schooling system that will help, you know, bring you out of poverty or whatever issues that have been imposed on you all these years? So I don't know if you've dealt with any of this when you were, you know, buying a home or, you know, looking at practices to buy or running your business, business-wise, even for you to get money into your community, there's roadblocks. So then how can you not have these issues? So I don't know if you've dealt with any of that in your time of being a business owner or trying to buy a home. So, you know, full transparency, I grew up in Evanston, love Evanston, very diverse community, as you know, reminds you of like an Oak Park. I was, um, I think myself and my husband were a little concerned about our abilities and if people would patronize us because of the way we look. And we've had an overwhelming response. This is full transparency. So I'm grateful for that. And who wants to be a patient with me is gonna be a patient with me. And who doesn't, doesn't want to. And so that was a concern. When it comes to purchasing a home, I've been blessed this year to purchase a new home. And I honestly, this is the first time that I ever felt like I thought maybe they were redlining us just a tad, but I, I had to kind of step back and say, maybe they're just playing hardball because maybe they thought this home was out of our budget. One of those things, but here we are. So that honestly is really the only time. Now, if you ask my parents, 
they may have had a different experience. And that's where I challenge you to interview an older Black person that can give you some good insight. What you're telling me has shown that there is progress happening. There's progress. There's progress. That, that kind of behavior doesn't exist anymore, but you are the first generation. Mm -hmm. That means that your parents and everyone previous to that has been dealing with this and that has affected your guys' ability to move forward in the world. Right. So great that I'm like, I'm happy that there's these changes, but we have like a lot of work to do. one thing, you know, that things are really showing changes. So I definitely am a little happy about, you know, that, but I think we can do more as a society. Oh yeah. Yeah. The other thing I forgot to talk to you about is with the school environment situation, um, just, you know, what it, what it shows is that teachers of the same race give empathy to the students of the same race most of the time. But so if a white teacher has white students and they misbehave in class, they feel empathy and they're willing to understand. But with a black kid, they're less likely to understand and willing, not willing to give excuses. With a black teacher, they do it with everybody. They give empathy across the board generally, and that's what the research study shows. So having different race teachers can make a difference. And I'm hoping with the new generation of teachers coming in that are part of our generation that don't see race the way we do, you know, are not we, but our parents' generation saw race, things will change. Um, because some of those disciplinary actions, they're believing that that ends up being the pipeline to prisons and thus mass incarceration. So there is this whole thought process, it's called the school to prison pipeline theory. And it pretty much means that if you are dealing with a lot of disciplinary action in school, you're eventually more likely to end up in the prison system or in the dealing with the criminal justice system. And since in general, black students are 3.6 more times likely to get suspended, that means that they're more likely to end up in the criminal justice system. And a lot of the disciplinary action that is taken really does affect child's ability to grow. There's, they end up with decreased reading skills, less likely to graduate from high school, higher likelihood of being incarcerated, higher likelihood of being stigmatized as a student, as a troublemaker. Um, also, if consistently being suspended, and pulls them out of school so they're not allowed to learn as much and then grow with their friends and they lose touch with those social ties with positive peers so they begin to feel isolated from the community and so then they start to pull away and then get into trouble and since black students are more likely to be suspended they're more likely to go through this process and then not get most from their educational experience so i think there's a lot of truth to what you read being seeing it firsthand having a sibling that struggled in school him being incarcerated for a period of time i saw it he ended up becoming a fine young man once he got his life together okay and my parents were damn good parents it's just what it is one of the things that has been very important as i said as a mother for me being a mother my husband's a strong man but raising these little boys as I'm going through the schooling process again, diversity was number one for me. If I didn't see it in the student body or faculty and staff, wasn't on my list. I think that based off of what you said, 
you know, the empathy component. It's multifactorial, and here's why. And I know this may not sound the best, but a black, a black teacher, just like that whole mentality of got to work a little harder to get, a, get to the top, you got to be a little nicer so that these parents don't go off on you. And so I think the empathy tends to be universal with their peers or with their students a little bit more because they know they got a lot riding on this. And if their name comes up with the principal or with the parent, they're not content with how they're managing their child, they got a lot riding on this. So it's so many emotional components, I feel like. And again, I have to read this, this information, could be true, but then there are some amazing teachers that are not Black that I'm sure have shown empathy as well. But there is something to be said about having people that look like you, that teach you. My very first Black teacher wasn't until I was in sixth grade. My sixth grade teacher. And that is a big conversation in the Evanston School District now. The whole equity issue. Because they got kids that are, these Black children, Evanston's a great, great school district. One of the best in the state, as they say. But the Black students are are literally developing four four grades level or four grade levels below their white counterparts. And so that's been a huge conversation within the past five years. And you know why I think that's an issue? Because there's not a lot of black teachers at all. You don't find it in a lot of places. And so I feel as though there's a different passion, there's a different emphasis when you see multiple races that are educating your children. My kids go to a Montessori school that I've been extremely pleased with. I think diversity is relative though. What I'm looking for in diversity is a little bit different than what they may think they're offering diversity. But I love the school. But I know for me as a, as a parent, when Melvin and I were going through what was most important to us when it came to this process for him, diversity was number one for me because I need him to have affirmation of who he is as a black child. It hasn't become any more apparent until this year that he has to understand who he is and understand that he is valued and he should not ever be afraid to be who he is. That's the one thing that they did talk about in the research paper was that the, a Black teacher can ask the right questions to a Black student about issues they may be having. They can relate. It's just about having relatability. You got somebody that's probably, they understand cultural norms a little bit better. Yeah. And they can talk to you a little bit different. And my cousin, who I'm going to be interviewing, he talks about called cultural competency of teachers and of school systems and that's what he does so i'm really excited to have him on i just have a few more like final questions my first question is what is something that you wish everyone would understand about growing up black or being a black parent that black people are beautiful that black people are a lot more educated than they paint us out to be that being a black parent every black child is not fatherless, even though that can be the immediate perception. Every Black child is not on Medicaid. That Black parents, they tend to, a lot of them, um, and the ones that I, I can only speak from my own personal experiences. Yeah, I got some family members that are poor parents. Don't get me wrong. But 
um, they have a, a pretty sound structure, family unit, and they are a village. They really have that village mentality. When one struggles, then the family comes in and helps pick up the pieces. So we're, we're no different than any other family. And that's what I think people need to kind of understand a little bit more and appreciate a little bit more. You already answered my second question, which was what is the biggest misconception about your identity, which you did a great job at answering as well. My last question is where would you like to see the future heading for your children, for the school system, for the justice system, for society? What, where do you want to see, what are, what gives you hope? I'm hoping if not this administration, future administration will ban these little petty crimes for marijuana on these, the, 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 what, what is incarcerating black and brown people. And now we have a whole industry focused on it. I want that out as much. And I'm not saying, again, accountability is key. There are some dirty people out here, people that look like me too. However, good majority of the people that are incarcerated, not everybody's a murderer. They, had a dime bag on them. They got locked up. Really? They're trying to find another way to make ends meet, to pay, pay, buy food. So that is something that I would love to see because that's been something that's been on my heart since marijuana has become legalized. And I think that you meet, you know, it's not just the rappers and people that's talking about this. This is a reality. You got a lot of young kids locked up for petty crimes for a long period of time education there's got to be a better way to 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 shrink this achievement gap it's we got to figure out a system and so communities like where i grew up they have committees that are focused on this now how do we you know shrink this so that we're not seeing this with our black and brown kids as much again a lot of it takes parental involvement as well you know, how engaged your parents, but there are so many resources to our disposal now that 50, 60, 70 years ago, my, my ancestors didn't have that. So how do we overcome that battle? Those are, that's definitely the two main things that stand out to me. You know, I live for the day that I can see my kids excel in whatever they choose to do. Every black kid don't want to be a rapper and a basketball player. We don't promote that in my house. It's just the reality. Now, if they want to, I'll try to help them flourish any of their, their desires, but it's not what they see. They see two dentists. They don't see a basketball player and a rapper. They don't see that. So we try to set that example of trying to show greatness and what you can achieve. It's not always about all the glitz and glam. It's about creating gener generational wealth, real estate investment. How do you invest and build your portfolio? That's the mindset, because every black person is not thinking about just buying Louis bags and Gucci and stuff like that. Yeah, we invest in real estate. That's what my husband and I do. We want to instill that in our children. Build your credit up. This is what it's about. It's not about all that other stuff. So I'm hoping, you know, um, there's a lot of, a lot more financial education for black people, brown people, people of color, for them to understand a lot of, it's so funny because my husband's really into finance. Melvin, besides him doing his real estate venture, and I literally have our, our team members from our office, family members that will go to him. Tell me how I need to build my credit. Tell me, what, and he loves talking about it because 
there's something greater than, than just working a nine to five. If you set yourself up to build up your, your wealth, that can last you for a long time. So these, those are key aspects that I think people don't get educated on. Sometimes they may not have the desire to learn about it, but that is really what needs to be the focus for the future for these young people. Start saving, start saving for your you know, retirement. I didn't know this. I didn't know any of this until I became an adult, until I was in my 30s and I met my husband who's really into that. So these are little basic things that, no, my parents aren't bad parents. We just, that wasn't something that was a focus for us in our household. And now that I know better, I can do better and I can pay it forward. That's what it's about. The one thing that we talked about previously was this is like the first time you guys have give, been given a financial opportunity. Like, to a degree that's way more beneficial than the opportunities that your mom and your absolutely. So this is like the first time that you can be educated, that people are willing to educate you and listen to you. So it's great that you guys have been really pushing the community, you know, especially the black community to take this opportunity and start to bring the whole community up together, you know, um, and the one thing I also just want to add in about with at least what I want to change in society is representation for Black people. Mm -hmm. Media has definitely stepped it up. Like AB, I think ABC started Blackish, and it I didn't watch Blackish when it first started, but now that it's on, he brings up a lot of good topics that ever. Yeah. And primetime TV where I remember watching during that time when I was younger, everybody watched TV at that time. Yeah. So now this is giving primetime spot to the black community. And yeah. I love that. And I want more of that, you know, like you guys being dentists, more doctors, more teachers that are mm -hmm. black, more astronauts that are black. They need to see because the volunteer work I've done that was the one thing that they told us is these black kids, all they keep seeing is basketball players, football players, rappers, singers. Yeah. And so they consistently told us to try to tell these kids that talk to, about the things that we were trying to do outside of those things. Right. And so there is a shift, but I, I do believe there can be more. So I think that's a good, that's a good point. And I will say this, um, lastly, I know patients come to me because of the way I look. And I'm grateful for it. Yeah. I got people that come to me who are not black because of the way that I look. Because they want their non-black children to see everybody isn't, everybody, every black person, every brown person is not a rapper or, or a ball player or a dope head or yeah. criminal. So I'm blessed and I'm grateful to be, um, be that figure in my community. Um, for people to understand that there's a possibility, a little black girl like me, to be where I am. And I'm grateful and I count my blessings every day um, because it, it could have been a different story. Well, I thank you, Jasmine, so much for doing this for me. You're my first podcast interview. Yeah. I very much appreciate it. And I want to commend you for your vulnerability and openness because this is the only way things can change and move forward. And it's hard to be open and vulnerable when you have a business and you mm -hmm. have a family to worry about and 
I really do appreciate you. I appreciate your friendship. You know that you've helped me through so much. <laughs> and I really look forward to seeing where you and Melvin take your empire because I really think it's going to be something amazing. And I think your intentions for the world and the community are just commendable. Like I'm so in awe of what you guys are doing. We appreciate you. <laughs> Thank you.